I'm quite good friends with both Joanne and Gifford Phillips. And this is the first time I've ever done anything at the Phillips Collection, but I feel, uh, you know, sort of at home since Gifford and I uh, served I as a curator. He is a member of the Board of Acquisitions for Painting and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. And some of what we agreed about and some of what we disagreed about will form part of the content of this talk. Uh, but the point was there again, it was a friendly, open, very direct kind of disagreement, and the only priority was art. Uh, so one was able, in fact, to talk about pictures, talk about works of art, uh, and have differences that mattered rather than differences that simply represented fixed positions, stalemated thinking, and so on. Uh, in talking with Kate Stilwell about this talk, she suggested that I do something in the area of contemporary art in museums today. Um, I made a longish title, um, which she judiciously edited. Um, <laughs> But it began with the, the, the rhyme from the song, Make New Friends and Keep the Old. Um, having worked in a, a museum of modern art, truly, the first American museum of modern art, practically the first one in the world, uh, the whole issue of contemporary, modern, uh, contemporary art, art in relation to modern art uh, was constantly under discussion. Uh, and so I would like to set, deal with that issue to a certain extent uh, and some other things along the way. Um, it's not my habit, except when I'm teaching art history as such, to give slide talks. Um, here is slide one, here is slide two, and so on and so forth. I prefer to think out loud um, and let the slides sort of shift in the background as a parallel conversation of images. Um, so I'm going to do exactly that now, uh, and I'm going to probably not get to all of the slides, but I will give you a few indications as to why they're there uh, and who made them, if they're particular works. Uh, but otherwise, I want to sort of unroll some thoughts uh, in front of them while they unroll behind me. If I am deeply tedious, you will have something very good to look at, I promise you. <laughs> so without further ado, uh, do the first one and the second one. Um, there is a uh, not-so-very-subtle point being made, just even by these first two and then by the second two, and that is actually the continuity of modern art. I said a moment ago that there were many debates about the relationship of modern art to contemporary art. My view is that contemporary art is simply the most recent of modern art and that modern art is an ongoing phenomenon. Um, so what you have on the far side is Daumier, one of the earliest modern artists, uh, extraordinarily well represented in this collection. Uh, uh, scenes from the Salon, the great big you know, omnibus exhibitions of art uh, of the 19th century to which masses of people came. Uh, we forget, I think, that the Salon was actually quite a varied fair. Uh, it had the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and all of it in quantity, except maybe the good, which is always scarce, relatively speaking. Uh, and it also had a huge public audience, so that when we hear contemporary critics, usually on the right, sometimes on the left, wringing their hands about the fact that people are coming in droves to exhibitions and that this, therefore, must be a very bad thing for culture, or how could culture appeal to so many people, uh, and still be good. We should be reminded that modern art has always had an audience. Uh, it has always had a mixed audience. It has always had an audience that was partially comprehending and partially uncomprehending. It depends on that audience for its meaning. So, for example, when you have, this is actually not two men arguing, it's a painter arguing with um, a collector or a potential collector, but we'll just pretend it's two men arguing. And on the far side, Philip Guston here and now there, uh, first, a single work of art being contemplated by this unknowable, unknown man in a Ku Klux Klan mask, and secondarily, uh, two such people debating a point 
what point, we don't know, uh, in a studio situation. Uh, modern art has always been sustained by its arguments. In fact, modern art is an argument. Um, people have long tried to clean up modern art's rough edges, have long tried to create chronologies wherein one tendency flowed seamlessly into the next tendency, and so on down the line. But the truth of the matter is that modern art has never been an agreed-upon entity. It has always been a debate about what the art of the modern area should be, and each proposal of individual artists or of movements has been a proposal against which there is always at least one counterproposal and usually dissenters from within the ranks. Uh, the Cubists didn't agree. Uh, the Surrealists didn't agree. The Surrealist uh, Pope uh, Breton was constantly expelling people because they didn't agree with him, and so on down the line. So the first basic thing one has to say about modern art is that it is an undecided matter, a matter of debate, active heated debate, and secondary that it's an active heated debate that includes the larger public rather than excludes the larger public. Uh, Jonathan and I do not convene in retreats in bucolic places and decide what the, the truth of the matter is and then come out and expound it. Um, we start out by disagreeing. What? We should, okay. We start out by disagreeing, and then we make our disagreements public in order that your disagreements with us and with each other can then become part of this sort of uh, round robin of debate. And each statement and counterstatement refines the territory without actually ever nailing it down. Now, I'm no longer in the front lines of these debates. Um, I haven't retired to academe, but I have uh, shifted my weight. I have been a painter, a critic, and a curator, and sometimes a teacher. Uh, and I've done all of them all of the time. Now I am doing more of the teaching and art making than I am of the curating and critiquing, um, but only in proportion. But that be said, I am not actually sitting in a museum. I am not taking official responsibility for uh, collections, for exhibition programs, and so on, or even appealing to the powers that be to have my place in the lineup, which is, where, of course, where one starts and most people uh, remain. Um, I'm watching from the sidelines. But I'm watching from the sidelines not just as a, uh, uh, a person who has professional interests in this who's not currently riding a horse. Uh, and what I really am is I'm watching the side, in the sidelines as a member of the public. I have rejoined the public. I have shifted from my, if you will, uh, uh, role as an officer in the Army to a civilian role. Uh, and I am watching what goes on. And I have some information that people who have not done what I've done have, but at the same time, I have many of the interests of the people who do form the general public, how museums do their jobs, uh, how they relate to the public, how things are described, how things are presented. All of this matters to me because it is through the museums that I now depend on access to pictures, sculptures, works of art, and a host of other things. Now, again, people are suspicious when somebody who is a professional makes this shift backwards. Uh, and they're suspicious in part because they're suspicious of the art world. Uh, as long as there has been art, but certainly as long as there has been modern art, uh, there has been skepticism that it is all a game, it is all charlatans, it is all a cabal. And the more money that gets involved and the more parties that are held and the more sort of superstructure that there is, the more this becomes a, a matter of debate. Uh, one of the downsides of the prosperity we see in the art world is precisely that it makes it harder to persuade people that the main uh, order of business for museums and for people who work in the field that we work in is, in fact, the art. Uh, that's why we're doing it. That's why we get together. That's why we, uh, again, disagree. But it is about the art. And all the rest of it is superstructure, as I said, and it is often a superstructure which creates far more problems 
uh, far more problems than it uh, in any way possibly could solve. But in any case, the standard setup is that there is this cabal, this group of people who uh, control the strings, make the decisions, spend the money, and have all the fun. And then there is the public. Uh, the public is, under these uh, kinds of uh, uh, paranoid visions, uh, equivalent to what was called in the 1970s the silent majority. Uh, the silent majority that can never speak for itself, but that everybody seems to want to speak for. Uh, that people presume to know what is on their minds, but almost never ask them. Uh, that people who talk most in the name of the silent majorities of art are the ones who probably care the least for what people actually do and think and feel in museums, how many of them come, what they concentrate on, how they assimilate difficult materials, and so on. In fact, as it was in politics in the real world, it is in cultural politics during the culture wars of the recent years, the silent majority is a convenient support for arguments that are held no matter what the public does. As somebody who's worked in a museum, I know the public rarely does what you want them to do and almost never does what you think they're going to do. The public is, in fact, enormously responsive to art. Uh, if they hated it as much as people say they do, they wouldn't come to the museums in the quantities that they do. Uh, and again, we go back to Daumier. They've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, this is just a couple, another sort of a stage setter. Uh, this is the Emily Tremaine uh, uh, collection on the far side in situ in their apartment. And on this side is an empty museum. The world uh, in which museum people operate is between this and this. And our task is to move most of what's in there, even the TV, over to there. And then uh, what, through the generosity of patrons like the Phillips and the Tremaines and others, uh, what is a matter of private enjoyment and understanding and consideration becomes a matter of public enjoyment and consideration. Uh, my view of what curators basically do is that they take things uh, from the open markets of art, which are necessary and in any case inevitable, and take them out of that market and return them to a state of worthlessness in monetary terms uh, in order that they can reassert their worth, uh, their possibilities to engender transactions of other kinds. That people for no money if you're in a national gallery or relatively little money if you're in a private gallery can come and participate in the visual culture of their own time and of recent times and indeed of any time. Uh, and much like a public library, you can come and get from it what you want at the time that you want it. Uh, you don't necessarily go there uh, simply to be instructed in art. You go there to make your own selections, your own decisions, to apportion your own time, to have your own dislikes, uh, to have your own discoveries, and so on. The role of the curator is to move material culture from there to there in order that this can happen. Uh, as to the silent majorities who can't speak for themselves, actually they can, uh, or are not allowed to speak for themselves, often that is true, uh, it has a lot to do with an understanding of them that presumes them to be actually of very little curiosity, uh, little tolerance for different and new things, and maybe just plain dumb. Uh, the dumbing down of museums has to do with underestimating this public, uh, speaking to everybody in the same elementary language, uh, and in fact, speaking them to an elementary language that even an elementary school kid sometimes would find offensive and condescending. Uh, and rather than dealing with them at the levels of their understanding, knowing that those levels are various. Now, uh, I'm going to quote something that I have quoted often in lectures, and if anybody's heard it before, I only half apologize for doing it. Um, at such time as this attitude of common sense becomes the common wisdom, 
then I will stop doing it. Uh, but since it isn't, and since, again, this sort of fictum, fictional uh, public of uh, uncomprehending, hostile, uh, you know, the great unwashed culturally, as long as that fiction survives, uh, one has to speak against it in certain ways. And oddly enough, uh, it was Virgil Thompson, the American composer, uh, who composed the music for Gertrude Stein's Four Saints in Three Acts, which makes him a bona fide modernist's modernist, uh, made his living writing for the New York Herald Tribune, or the New York Tribune at that time. Uh, and he wrote on music, and he wrote on complicated music, and he wrote on popular music. He had an acid tongue. He uh, gave no quarter to music that he thought was mediocre. But he wrote about all music seriously, and he wrote on, uh, about it on behalf of a sophisticated understanding of music that he wished to make available to a general readership that was riding the subways, in the buses, in taxi cabs, or wherever they were. He was, as a single critical voice, not terribly different, and certainly close in generation and education, to the likes of Alfred Barr, who created a museum that did more or less the same thing. And he said that the watchwords of anybody dealing with complicated material in the general public was, never to underestimate or to overestimate what the reader has in the way of information and never to underestimate what they have in intelligence. In other words, what you do in these circumstances is deliver to intelligent people material which is new to them uh, and do it in a way where their intelligence can take action on that material uh, rather than thinking that it all has to be done by you or that you have to spare them the difficult bits or what have you. And again, in the hysteria of the culture wars, this kind of common sense, and since uh, Virgil Thompson was an all-American composer, you would have to say all-American common sense, uh, this kind of common sense has been lost sight of. That said, uh, one has to recognize, and I'm going to knit together a few texts, and I'll tell you where this one comes from in a minute. Uh, that said, one has to be uh, a cognizant of the fact that the general public does, in fact, often resist uh, the things that are new and that are introduced to it. It is undeniable that there is a genuine uh, level of hostility to contemporary and modern art, uh, although there is a frequent forgetting that contemporary art is simply, again, the modern art of the present and that modern art used to be that offensive uh, to people as well. Uh, Morley Safer famously did a program on 60 Minutes in which he made mock of the likes of Robert Ryman, uh, Jeff Koons, and so on, and celebrated the likes of Miro. But it is only because of what Alfred Barr did and a generation of early modernists, collectors, patrons, interpreters did that made uh, Miro tolerable to Americans and grandfathered into what we think of as good old-fashioned traditional art. Um, previously, of course, he was the opposite of John Stuart Curry, uh, the opposite of uh, Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, he was one of those foreign, slippery, uh, surrealist guys with a bad reputation. Um, this is now time to change. Uh, this is just to give you, again, sort of background. On the far side, Alan McCollum's Surrogates, a satirical installation in the former Leo Castelli gallery of a whole lot of paintings which are roughly equivalent uh, but slightly different, and all of them vacant or maybe full of their vacancy. I'm not sure which. In any case, a postmodernist gesture that suggests that the multiplication of works of art is heading towards a kind of entropic point of meaninglessness. And on the near side, a beautiful painting um, by David Deutsch in which almost the same motif is recreated a little bit like the great German architect Schinkel's uh, design for uh, the magic flute or like the cupola of the, or the cupola of the dome of the um, um, 
um, the Forum in Rome, not the Forum, the Pantheon in Rome. In any case, a sort of neoclassical rendition of the same thing, which is by turns exalted. Now, given that the public is capable of understanding, given that it is actually eager to debate and contend with things that it doesn't like necessarily and may not understand necessarily, the reason that it buys the newspapers, the reason that it buys uh, catalogs, the reason it goes to exhibitions, that does not it does not follow that they necessarily like or have to like what it is that they're being presented. Um, when I'm teaching in art schools, I always ask students, I say, well, tell me about your work. And they will say, well, this is what I like. And I said, I'm not really very interested in what you like. Uh, liking is a relatively passive relationship to art. The question is, what do you see? What is it that uh, gets your attention? What is it, in fact, sometimes that you dislike, but that has gotten your attention enough to make it noticeable that dislike becomes a positive category of experience? But this transition uh, towards accepting that which is irritating uh, is a slow one. Uh, we take it too lightly that this occurs, and we take it too much for granted that it will simply pass, because at the worst end, you would have the question of being shown something you dislike, waiting two or three beats until everybody says they like it, waiting three beats until you can say you like it even though you don't like it, waiting four beats until everybody can pretend that they all understand the thing that they don't like that somebody else persuaded you by peer pressure to sort of like anyway. Um, and then everybody can agree that it's good. There's something like a process uh, of this kind very often going on. Uh, and that is not good for art either. Art should, in fact, uh, be given its due. And if its idea, if its purpose is to challenge the settled opinion, the conventional experiences, even the sophisticated conventional experiences, uh, then it's not giving it its due to deny it that dislocating, disorienting capacity. Uh, the myth of the avant-garde always being right and of conservatives always being, in a sense, reactionaries rather than conservatives, or traditionalists being always reactionary rather than traditional, is a myth that serves art badly, in fact. Uh, and again, if you look at a collection like this, it's very interesting to see how a, a work like Anger, who would have represented the pinnacle of a certain kind of classical academic art, but of the pinnacle, I mean, not, not the average, uh, is integrated into a collection that has Martin Hartley for American artists or that has Miro in it as well. Uh, the, the recovery, the uh, relearning of anger that took place in the early teens and middle 20s uh, in the work of an artist I'm about to show you was a rediscovery that there was merit in the old, the old that needed to be shaken off in order to make the new as of 1907. And this dialectic back and forth between being able to wean yourself from former uh, superlative categories, enter into territory where things are strange and unfamiliar and uncomfortable, also includes a third step, which means to go back sometimes and redeem those things you needed to shake off in order to learn what it is that was, in fact, the most interesting, most recent proposition. The best article ever written on this phenomenon, here we go here, here we get right up to date. Here is Picasso being neoclassical uh, and also being radical. 
Uh, this is 1907. This is about 1922 uh, or three, I think, something like that. Um, this is a fine example of how modern art is not a linear trajectory from one thing to another, from one cutting edge to the next cutting edge. It is, in fact, a kind of cosine curve, up and down and in and out, or a cosine curve combined with a spiral that things are always being retraced, redone, rethought, and so on. And that the so-called return to order of the 1920s, which this represents, and which some of the work in this uh, collection represent, was not the work of artists who lost their nerve, but rather the work of artists who rediscovered in things that they had gone past that there was unfinished business to be attended to for them, at very least. In any case, uh, the best article ever written on this is an article by Leo Steinberg, written in 1966, uh, which is to say right in the middle of one of the biggest changes in taste in this country, called Contemporary Art and the Plight of the Public. And he spells out in very uh, good and clear art historical and cultural historical ways all of the canards of this idea that the avant-garde should be easy, that the transition from the old to the new should be easy, that the only people who don't find it easy are therefore in some ways ignorant or resistant, and makes a very good argument for why it is that this process should be viewed dynamically and with complexity. Uh, he notes that, in fact, uh, the most resistant uh, uh, members of the public, and he uses this term uh, regarding himself and others, uh, who would normally be defined as professionals, the most resistant members of the public are, in fact, probably the artists of the previous generation. Uh, he notes, for example, that Paul Signac, in 1906, uh, resisted and wished to ban the acceptance to the French Salon of Matisse's great painting, The Joy of Life, which is in the Barnes Collection, which is one of the, you know, sort of the, 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 the great groundbreaking paintings of modern art. He also notes that Matisse himself, uh, when confronted with the Demoiselle of Davignon by Picasso, painted one year later, also thought it was awful and saw, uh, a way, uh, saw him as a threat and said that he was going to sink him uh, because he saw cubism as such an, uh, an anomaly in relation to phobism. So you have two isms, both of them named by their adversaries and both of them rattling the cages of the conservatives, but the two premier painters of that moment were rattling each other's cages, in fact. Uh, he points out, that is to say Steinberg points out, that you should remember that at the time Matisse painted the Joie de Vivre in 1906, Degas was still alive. The Degas was still extending the tradition of Angresque draftsmanship, of which, for example, the little painting Melancholia that's upstairs is another example. And that therefore, that tradition was alive, and not only alive, it was in very good hands. It was creating, in fact, masterpieces. So the overthrow of the Angresque tradition was not meaning the overthrow of the average bad academic practitioner. It was, in fact, a direct challenge to a substantial idea of what art should be. That indeed Degas is modern art, and Matisse was another proposition about modern art, uh, and that the uh, Picasso model was another proposition about modern art, and then Picasso ended up disagreeing with himself and going back to the Angresque model, and so you sort of have the configuration. Uh, that, uh, uh, that Matisse was also uh, responsible for rejecting Brock's cubist landscapes in the 1908 Salon. So you have 1906, 1907, 1908, the Phobos at war with the Cubists, the Cubists at war with the Phobos, the post-impressionist Signac at war with the Phobos, and on down the line. Now, at this point, uh, the ground is shifted by uh, Steinberg to his own generation. 
And he speaks about the predicament, the plight of the public, and he is a member of that public, of a public that admires abstract expressionism, de Kooning, Pollock, and the great discoveries of, if you really think about it, just a decade previous or less. Um, that the very newest of the new in the post-war era was already becoming a little bit old. Uh, and in the process of becoming a little bit old, the newer new was a challenge not to an old, old idea of modern art, but to a recent idea of modern art that had barely taken hold in the public's mind. And the Jasper Johns, uh, in you know a few paintings made about 1955 to 1958, shown in 1958 for the first time, upended a movement which had just had its greatest masterpieces painted in 1950. So Johns painted them five years after you know, Pollock's greatest paintings, some of de Kooning's greatest paintings, um, and showed them three years thereafter. And just as the triumph of American painting was being celebrated, its undoing by another American painter was being uh, taken in hand, much in the way that the relation between post-impressionism to Fauvism, to Cubism, and to Expressionism also uh, took place. Now, uh, Steinberg talks about this in terms of his uh, discomfort. And he writes rather beautifully of what it meant to him. Because, of course, Johns did everything the opposite, or it was thought at that time, everything the opposite of what the abstract expressionists had done. Rather than inventing his subject, he chose a subject arbitrarily. Rather than uh, choosing an exalted subject, he chose a banal subject. Uh, rather than painting with abandon, he painted with reserve. Uh, rather than painting with high key color, for the beginning anyway, he painted mostly in tonalities and grisailles. And all of these things added up to something that Steinberg uh, describes rather beautifully, as I say. It is basically the idea that with each change of paradigm, with each change of model for what modern art might be, there is as much loss as there is gain, and sometimes rather more loss than gain or at least at the level of the pleasures one has been accustomed to, more loss than gain. There's a certain sense of loss, of sudden exile, of something willfully denied, sometimes a feeling that one's accumulated culture or experience is hopelessly devalued, leaving one exposed to, the spiritual, to a spiritual uh, uh, destitution. And this is the experience that can hit the artist even harder than the amateur. And here again, he returns the artist to the equation to say that the people who fight this are not necessarily the members of the consuming public, but, if you will, the producing members of the public uh, who are members of the public except when they are producing. Confronting a, confronting a new work of art, they may feel excluded from something they thought that they were a part of, a sense of being thwarted or deprived of something. And it is again a painter who put it best. When George Brock in 1908 had his first show, uh, first sight, excuse me, of the Demoiselle d'Avignon, which is to say Brock, who, as everyone knows, became absolutely intimately connected uh, to Picasso in just this time and was the co-founder of Cubism, but was not the originator of the, of the most aggressive forms of it, uh, so that you, you, the, the proximity between uh, one painter and another in this sort of drama of dispossession uh, is extremely intimate. When Brock in 1908 said he had his first view of the Demoiselle d'Avignon, he said it was as though he were supposed to exchange our usual diet for tow and paraffin. Yeah. Um, in any case, if this is, this is the case, then the drama of uh, the actual shift of paradigm, the shift of convention, the types of pleasures delivered and withheld, there are also moments when there's too much pleasure delivered, you know, 
the decorum of art is broken when there is too much color, when there is too much gesture, when there is too much sensuality, and people are as often upset by a surfeit of the things they like in proportionate amounts as they are by the removal altogether of those things that they would like in proportionate amounts. That's another drama uh, of modern art. But in any case, uh, if this is what's going on at the level of production, <coughs> at the level of production, uh, then what you do in the relationship that people in museums, the museums as a whole, have to the public. How is it that museums manage or uh, deal with this drama in a way that they can serve their function? Particularly if you don't accept, as I do not, the notion that there is such a thing as postmodernism. Uh, the idea that there is postmodernism, it seems to me, was produced by two rather predictable constituencies at a moment of crisis for both of them, but a crisis I perhaps don't share as uh, intensely as they do, and therefore I have a more uh, willingness to take the longer view. Uh, Postmodernism was in part a name given to a period after modernism by people who had always hated modernism. The return to the neoclassical, the return to the orderly, to the imperial style, all the things that are associated with a certain kind of 1970s and 80s art uh, that Charles Jenks, among others, has written about, celebrated this thing as the postmodern period. And it was a kind of, whew, modernism is over. Now we can get back to the business of making serious art. Um, the other postmodernism, of course, was the radical postmodernism, or at least self-professed radical postmodernism, that thought that modernism had become the academy, uh, and therefore the only way to make new art was to shed the academy, was to throw off the academy altogether. Uh, the Academy of the New, as Harold Rosenberg once called it. And so you have these two uh, highly polemicized, in fact, highly politicized uh, views of modernism uh, occurring sometime in the 1970s and becoming dominant in the 1980s. Uh, it seems to mean that we are now in a post-post-modernist phase, uh, in which case I think if you have a double negative, that's a post-post is pretty much of a double negative, we should just you know, slice them both off and admit that we have been in modernism all along, um, that the cycles that we are seeing are cycles that we have seen in modernism before, or at least in modern art, if you want to take the term modernism out of the conversation for a moment and say it may be accurately applied to certain ideological tendencies that are in fact irreconcilable with certain aspects of modern art, but if we just say modern art, the art of modern times, the art of modernity, that that modern art has always incorporated its contradictions, has always uh, used its contradictions. And again, we're back to Picasso. Picasso was the first person to, in a masterful way, rebel against his own achievements, and then to rebel again against his own rebellion. And the process of Picasso is a series of repeated changes in directions, tactical and also genuinely inspired changes in direction to correct course lest he, in fact, become a prisoner of his own discoveries. But in any case, let me go. Here are some modern art, again, that belongs to categories celebrated here, uh, categories which are not avant-garde but are absolutely modern. And that's another thing. The avant-garde is not the only definition of modern art. It is a definition of a constituency within a much larger community of people who produce modern art. And in fact, it is the definition sometimes of a certain period in an individual artist's life. They belong to the avant-garde and then they don't. Or they belong to the avant-garde and then the name is taken by somebody else and they may continue to do radical work, 
but the avant-garde as a tendency in culture is eclipsed in their understanding of it by some other understanding. In any case, these are the kinds of things that were collected, and all of these pictures belong to the Museum of Modern Art. These were the kinds of pictures. Let me have, let's see if I can do this. This is, of course, Duane Rousseau, who's an antecedent of modern art, who was sort of uh, grandfathered into it. These are the kind of pictures that formed the center of modernist uh, definitions of modern art in this country for a very long time. It was a vital center. It was a rich center. It was a variegated center. And at the edges were other things, which I'll also show you. These, this is a genuinely conservative modern painter uh, and an anti-modernist modern painter, but every bit a modern modern painter still. Baltus, sorry. Oops. Oh, shoot. I'm not very good at this. Uh, this is Hopper, of course, a conservative modern painter, but a very modern painter. This is Duchamp, a radical modern painter, uh, and then a radical non-painter modernist, um, who, incidentally, uh, here is a, is a good case of how the avant-garde of ideas and the avant-garde of practice can become separated. Duchamp is discussed over and over again in contemporary texts as the man who rebelled against the mere retinal qualities of painting, that visual pleasure was a no-no and that he rebelled against it, and also the man who upended the whole commerce and establishment of art. The fact that Duchamp remained one of the best eyes in New York and was constantly on call to advise collectors on which Matisse to buy or which Brancusi is something that the modern art uh, ideologists conveniently forget when they consider his career, and the fact that he was so concerned with posterity and so concerned with history and so much wanted to insert himself into history and rewrite it around himself that he, in a sense, created his own museum. So far from being the man who brought the museum down, he was the man who more or less brought it home and you know, tinkered with it and then sent it back out in the world. Okay, these uh, two modernists to show you how this debate can proceed. One on the far side is Jean Arp. On the near side, Theo van Doesburg. Uh, it was van Doesburg who invited Arp nominally a Surrealist and a Dadaist, to come to the Rationalist Bauhaus. Uh, and you can see that there are actual exchanges between them, just as there were between Calder and Mondrian. Uh, but stylistically, they are not seamlessly connected, and the differences between them are at least as interesting as their similarities. Some more anti-modernist modern art. Uh, this is, again, Baltus on the far side, a portrait of Deirin, who was an artist who had been avant-garde and by this time was the opposite. Or Ivan Albright, who was just too weird to be anything, avant-garde or conservative. <laughs> or uh, Jacob Lawrence, who's, again, very well represented in this collection, uh, who is one of the most popular of all modern painters in this country. The other most popular painter, or used to be most popular painter, is Ivan Chelichev, who painted hide-and-seek, which is a painter painting that so embarrassed curators of my generation that nobody, almost nobody but me uh, at the modern would hang it. Um, it is a painted dearly loved by the public, dearly loved by the guards at MoMA because it makes people happy, and abhorred by people of taste. <laughs> or, uh, again, in terms of the history of modern art, there is indeed a women's history of modern art, which is better written in the acquisitions of some museums than it is in their actual practice of hanging pictures uh, or writing about pictures. And so this is a case of two paintings, uh, on the far side, Gwen John, on the near side, Frida Kahlo, uh, that have been in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art for 50 years, 60 years, uh, that rarely until recently got shown, and that Elizabeth Murray, whose painting is just outside, uh, made an exhibition of all of the women in the collection 
of the Museum of Modern Art, but in deep storage to remind people, again, that there are these many other histories of modern art, and they even got so far as to the front door of the big house, but then they got put in the backside of that building. And so on. These are more classic modernists. I'm heading towards something else. But this, this is the cavalcade. But by now, it should be obvious that none of this is seamless. And none of this makes perfect sense. And if you see it as being a progression, a mainstream, as Greenberg liked to talk about it, you're missing the point entirely. This is unbelievably mixed up, contradictory, divergent, uh, you know, full of reversals in the, in the careers of individual artists, full of reversals in tendencies and moments in different uh, cultural histories of different countries, different places. Modern art has always been a wide open plane of possibilities, uh, what I like to think of as a delta rather than a mainstream, rather than anything that can be uh, organized. And it is to the fault, or it is the fault, I should say, of those of us who work in museums to persuade people that it has been in some ways all rather orderly after all, that the continuities of culture were immediately apparent to us. In fact, they were only apparent to us lately uh, or later. And just to give you an example, I talked at the beginning about uh, Steinberg having uh, talked about the effect that uh, the uh, work of um, uh, Jasper Johns had on him and how much he was troubled by it and how much he felt dispossessed. Um, I just recently did a catalog for a show in New York uh, which was a juxtaposition of the late work of Philip Guston. Again, you have a very good example here. And Jasper's work from the last 10, 15 years. And you can see this incredible dialogue that he is having now posthumously with Guston and that he had to a certain extent actively in Guston because the changes in John's work began around the end of Guston's life uh, when the literary, overtly symbolic kind of painting became more and more a pronounced factor. When the literary... Johns began to emerge from the previously anti-literary, literalist kind of Johns. Um, this is, again, a case of where a great master doubles back on himself and on art history to pick up a thread that nobody thought he would ever pick up, and where the brushstrokes, if you now put them side by side, of Guston, which are comical and broad and uh, bold and full of feeling, uh, put next to uh, John's, you begin to realize how much feeling there has always been in John's breastwork and how much the deprivations initially felt were only one aspect of what was actually happening in his, his, his factor. Well, that was just uh, Ellsworth Kelly, and this is uh, Robert Rauschenberg. Now, uh, this is um, uh, Bob Morris and uh, Stuart, um, I'm sorry, uh, Smith. David Smith, not David Smith, Tony Smith. Um, one more last example on this score. Uh, this is another. This is uh, the work of, in both cases, the work of um, Gerhard Richter. Gerhard Richter is an artist very much like Picasso who has contradicted himself from start to finish of his career. Every time he was going left, he turned out to be going right. Every time he was going cold, he got hot. Every time he got hot, it turned out that actually it was like dry ice hot. Uh, and so on down the line. This is an artist who has built his career on contradictions in his own idea of what modernism should be and in parallel practices that would seemingly cancel each other out, which is why for a long time the interpretation of Richter's work was that he was massively insincere, that he was hedging all of his bets, and that he didn't mean anything. And the best that could be said of him by the people who saw him as a Duchampian annihilator of art was that what he was doing was using up the last little gasps of vitality in every convention he could get his hands on. 
and that when he was done, painting would be dead. <laughs> so much for, again, the discrepancy between avant-garde thinking and avant-garde practice. Now, oops. I'm going to do a little bit of show and tell here uh, autobiographically and then make a few more points at the end. Um, this is all material having to do with my time at MoMA. That's why it's in slide form, by the way, and you're not getting PowerPoint, uh, primitive technologies of the old days. Uh, but these are bits and pieces of exhibitions and places where I tried to use the collection of the Museum of Modern Art precisely to point out these anomalies, to point out where the contradictions existed, where things seemed to be one thing and revealed themselves to be something else, and so on down the line. So in this particular show, it was based on the idea of what was pure in abstraction and what was not. And on the far side, you see a black object, which is Donald Judd. And on the wall opposite, you see a series of constructivist drawings using the shapes uh, known to us from Russian artists such as Malevich. But of course, the drawings are Sherry Levine's imitations of Malevich. And the Donald Judd has in its middle not a pure abstract form, but a good old-fashioned American bread pan. Um, on the near side, you have two paintings, uh, by, one by Tony Smith, the sculptor you just saw, who made that sort of um, bar-shaped structure in the garden, and on the far side, Al Held. These are two full-bore modernists, right? And this exhibition, unfortunately, I've lost some of the other slides. This exhibition was made up of a series of affirmations of a heroic view of modernism, deeply felt, deeply understood, and manifest with other things that make those definitions seem to wobble. But in fact, the work was made, all of it, within a very short period of time, and all of it was made with the knowledge of the existence of the other work, or very nearly so. Uh, there was, in the middle of this exhibition, an enormous room by Ilya Kabakov, uh, which I acquired from the museum, you'll see it shortly, uh, in which there is a great big white piece of board, basically, covered with cheap enamel, and all you see is a little tiny gray figure. And the story that goes with this is that alone in his studio, a Soviet-era Russian painter uh, created for himself the abstract sublime that Malevich and others had dreamed of and then leapt into it. Uh, it's a wonderful sort of poetic conceit and wonderfully impossible because what it really tells you about is a claustrophobia from which there was no escape uh, and so on. But that uh, Kabakov, as the inheritor of this uh, utopian tradition of Russian modernism, should take it on means that when people like Sherry Levine play with the same era, the, the points of departure and the reasons for doing it vary. If Sherry Levine is questioning the authority of the abstract sublime as we have been taught it, then Kabakov is questioning it from the inside because it's still, that utopian idea, still has its pull. But of course, for a Soviet artist living with the disastrous state incorporation of those ideas, uh, the pain of the deception was far greater. This is another one I did on the grotesque. The grotesque is where uh, contradictions meet, and which is why it interests me so very much. Uh, and this is Andy Warhol leads into the grotesque, a decorative painting of people mangled in a car crash. There can hardly be anything more grotesque. Or nearby, there is, once again, the painting of uh, Chelichev, Hide and Seek, along with Hans Belmer's doll. In the background, de Kooning's Woman uh, 4, I believe it is. Uh, Woman 4 can be looked at as high modernism, of the exalted kind, or it could be looked at as an incredibly misogynist cartoon, 
or it can be looked at as an incredible satire of the tradition of fine drawing of which Angra was rep a representative and of which de Kooning was actually a past master. It can be looked at a thousand different ways, and all of these contradictory impulses or inputs are part of what's there. This is further in the same exhibition. You see, again, the de Kooning painting next to John Graham, uh, these two uh, sort of uh, belle époque uh, beauties uh, with crossed eyes. And in the far distance, there is a painting by Guston. Uh, Guston and de Kooning were friends. Guston and de Kooning knew each other. Guston and de Kooning also uh, parted company in certain ways. The de Kooning belongs to the high modernist period, the 50s, and the Guston belongs to the period in which only de Kooning remained to paint those kind of pictures. Uh, here is Carl Solenberg, Eva Hess, uh, KOS and Tim Rollins, Nancy Spiro. It was an attempt to show that in the bowels of the modern was all that modernism, or at least the mainstream idea of modernism, disallowed. And it was there in full and in plenty. Um, oh, sorry, I didn't go. Uh, oops, I'm doing the wrong thing. Uh, this is, uh, on the uh, middle is uh, Mike Kelly. In the distance, an early uh, Carol Dunham. Uh, and uh, a piece on the left side, Charles Ray. And on this wall here, I think a kind of interesting juxtaposition, that is the back side of John Copeland's and the front side of Louise Bourgeois. Or this. This is how modernism reenters the Museum of Modern Art uh, through the front door, in fact, but in a backwards way. This is the Italian artist Maurizio Catalan in a project that was done during the projects programs at the Modern when I was uh, directing it. Uh, and he is standing in front of Roy Lichtenstein's late interior paintings, paintings very much influenced, by the way, by Matisse. So the dialogue Lichtenstein to Matisse and Maurizio Catalan as Picasso uh, to uh, Matisse continues all the way into the 21st century. And this is uh, this character posing with uh, some kids outside the museum. This is where uh, the performative carnivalesque side of this whole enterprise uh, becomes interactive in public space. Uh, here's another dialogue. On the far side, a late de Kooning painting uh, that Kirk Barnegat and I acquired for the collection. And on the near side, uh, this is a, a, a performance piece done, a performance piece in video done by Paul McCarthy called The Painter. Um, this painting was shown in a retrospective of de Kooning's late work, which I presented at the Modern. Uh, and at the same time, Paul was doing a project for us in the project's gallery. Um, he originally started out thinking that he was going to do a satire of Andy Warhol, so he bought himself a wig. Uh, but then he decided, no, he was going to do a satire of de Kooning, a satire of the artist struggling in their studio, of the suffering of the archetypal abstract expressionists. And then, uh, with all the cruelty that artists can show one another, uh, just in the kind of dynamic that I described in the beginning, back and forth between the early modernists and the teens, of the 20th century, uh, he decided to satirize not only de Kooning, but de Kooning in old age, de Kooning, who at that time was suffering from encroaching Alzheimer's disease. De Kooning made great paintings, but there was no question that he was losing his wits in some other departments. So in this video performance, the artist now has a clown's nose, the artist struggles to make a painting, uh, butchers himself in the process, and the artist, represented by McCarthy himself, uh, Bill de Kooning was a very beautiful man, and Paul McCarthy, I'm saying to say, is not, but he makes a very good clown. Um, in any case, uh, he sits there the whole time going, de Kooning, de Kooning, de Kooning, so that 
Downstairs at the Modern, the rebellion of a young avant-garde against the old master upstairs was something that people actively dealt with, rather than sort of shutting off or screening away the fact that there were these tensions, these contradictions. Uh, the museum actually brought them together in a way that was possible for the public to experience sequentially or at least alternatively. Here's uh, some more of this, more de Kooning. He, he, he did everything. He, did, he also did uh, uh, Fontana, the Italian painter. He, did, he, he satirized everybody, but de Kooning was the central character. Uh, and this is him in bed at night. Uh, and that is the other de Kooning painting we acquired at this time, thanks to Philip Johnson. Now, de Kooning is a great enough painter and also a funny enough painter himself and cruel enough himself uh, to be able to endure this kind of satire. McCarthy is a great enough artist not to do it gratuitously, but in fact to do it in order to bring to bear all of the things that we are now, many of us, restless with when we are told over and over and over again the myth of creation as it was told in 1950. Robert Ryman on the near side and on the far side, a painter who died uh, regrettably very much too young, Moira Dreyer, two artists uh, who uh, have used every inch of the painted surface of a canvas in order to make a painting. Uh, and she took this piece of uh, uh, wood and painted it and folded it and manipulated it almost as if it was a piece of paper. What you can't see, unfortunately, is that all of the edges of this painting are painted. And if you approach this from the side, there is as much painting on the side as there is on the surface. And that the way Ryman thinks about this is a painting in complete space rather than one that is only to be dealt with frontally. Where did he learn this? He learned this from Mark Rothko. Again, somebody represented upstairs. And how did he learn it? He was a guard at the Museum of Modern Art when Rothko was installing um, his exhibition at that time done by James Paul Sobey. Uh, so that you have the transmission directly from one artist to another artist, an idea transmitted then indirectly to a third artist. This is where tradition is operating in living rather than being handed down in some uh, authoritative way. And this is a real dialogue within uh, several generations uh, about possibilities of painting and painting an object. Now, I'm gonna go through these fast because I don't wanna go too long. Another little parallel. This is Tony Smith, once again, a great sculpture called Die, and one on the far side by Tom Friedman, which is uh, something I acquired from the museum, which has, you can't really see it very carefully, but there's a little fly that has landed on the perfect cube. Uh, when Kirk Ronadeau incorporated this in an exhibition that he did, the catalog publisher airbrushed the fly out, uh, thinking that it was a speck on the uh, photograph, and we had to airbrush it back in, basically. Louise Bourgeois doing her funk, and Jim Nutt doing his funk. Now, I'm going to go through these very quickly, but everything you have seen after uh, the Picasso are things that I bought for the Museum of Modern Art or was instrumental in bringing into the collection through gifts and other means. Um, now, the modern, as a, an encyclopedic museum of modern art, of course, has many, many, many categories, many, many strands. And the ability to do this in that context is made possible by the fact that if you bring new things in that comment on older things or that represent uh, imaginative leaps from older things or however you would like to trace those filiations, uh, the, the point is that the, the hand you start with is already more than 52 cards. And therefore, any card that you add to it, anything you do to increase it, will almost necessarily find a corollary. And the question is to pick the ones that are the most effective, that are the most revelatory, both vis-a-vis -vis the new work and vis-a-vis -vis the old work. 
A collection like the Phillips is narrower in focus altogether, but it is not exempt from this or uh, without benefit from doing it either. That all modern art cries out to be renewed by newer modern art. All modern art cries out to be uh, challenged by other modern art. And if the names I mentioned to you at the beginning uh, are clear now, that the Picassos upstairs argue with the Matisses upstairs. That the post-impressionist paintings here argued with the impressionist paintings here. Uh, that what little there is of surrealism argues with what little there is of uh, de Stijl. That all these different tendencies that we see graciously installed nonetheless represent opposing or very nearly opposing propositions and sometimes heatedly opposing propositions. And that the vitality of collections is in being able to bring that to the surface in a way that people can understand how much was at stake for the artists and how much is at stake even now in thinking about the different you know, sort of vectors of possibility that each modern art movement represents and that each individual accomplishment represents. Uh, again, David's, uh, Tony Smith, near is Luke Tarman's painting of Lumumba. This is Ellen Gallagher on the near side. Another interesting case is somebody who takes the American abstract sublime, but what you don't see very clearly is that every little shape there, every little dot and dash, are either great big saucer eyes or greatly enlarged lips. Basically, caricature material taken out of racist cartoons by an African-American artist who then inserts them into the kind of space that Agnes Martin would be associated with. Basically, to introduce the disconcerting social reality that is embedded in the American sublime that we have come to associate with abstract painting of the 50s, 60s, and all. Uh, this is Robert Gober. This is actually a very subtle piece, by the way. Um, a subtle piece in the sense that uh, you, you have to think about what you're actually looking at. The uh, piece of leg comes out of the wall across your path, um, blocks your path. It's a little bit like, and again, this is where our historical parallels work, it's a little bit like the arms in Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast that hold the candelabras. And when Beauty and the Beast walk down the corridor, they move. Right? So this is an eruption of an anomalous thing in space, but directly connected to surrealist tradition. But then Gober, being the artist that he is, doesn't just do that. Um, Gober is an avowedly homosexual male artist. And what does he do? He positions the leg so that any viewer is on the inside of this man's leg, not on the outside, and makes it an uncomfortable position or perhaps a desirous position, depending on what your uh, viewpoint on these things is. But it makes it a position where every detail of your location in relation to the object is important to what it means. This is an object by Jörg Immendorf uh, that um, Jonathan and I both like very much. This is, uh, this is uh, Dennis Oppenheim, which is a puppet piece. This is a little block uh, that has the German flag paint on it and a nonsense word, which is Immendorf's word for Dada. Um, and Immendorf was a young uh, Maoist student radical in the 1970s uh, who protested the German government. Same time as the Bader-Meinhof period, he did the comic uh, light Dada version of it. Um, and so he walked around the German parliament in Bonn, dragging this little block behind him like it was a dog that he was walking. Uh, and the police didn't think this was funny at all. Um, so uh, he was arrested. Uh, but Immendorf, being a very clever fellow, uh, realized that this was likely to happen. So the police arrested him, confiscated the block, and sent him on his way, at which point he realized that he was probably off the hook they weren't going to come around again for a while, and he pulled out another identical block uh, and continued his walk. 
Now, this uh, is also a question for uh, exhibition or uh, curatorial practice. Which block to buy? <laughs> the most damaged one, therefore the one that has the most traces of the performance, or the least damaged one that looks the best? And I bought the most damaged one. Felix Gonzalez Torres on the near side, Jim not on the far side. I'm going to race through these because I want to say one or two things where it is not necessary to see all of them, but I will just show you some more. This is on the far side, Carol Dunham. On the near side, uh, Charles Ray, and he's the artist there. And the piece is the bench. This is an interactive bench. It's a plank. And all you need is two viewers or two sitters to put it into motion. Absent that, it is a plank. This is uh, a beautiful abstract painting by Robert Mangold. This is a beautiful abstract sculpture made by Jack Lerner from Brazil out of 3,600 packets of Marlboros that she smoked. Uh, here is Felix Gonzalez Torres, again, uh, a candy piece, which was shown here at the Hirschhorn. Uh, and here on the near side is Franz Vest, interactive objects on one side. These are sort of canes that you can pick up and walk around with, whereas in Felix's case, you pick up the candy and eat it. Uh, the sculpture disappears by uh, the, the, the activities of the audience. And in the case here, uh, the public is made ridiculous by wielding an object which is unwieldy. Uh, this is a painting by Tom Noskowski, who I think is actually shown here, has he not? At, uh, at some time, no? Um, he's shown in Washington sometime recently. On the far side, a painting by John Curran. This is Rachel Whiteread's library. On the far side, this is a Charles Ray sculptor called The Family Romance, where every member of uh, a, a nuclear American family is reduced to the size of a median member. So the baby is too large and the parents are too small. Um, there is nothing uh, more uncanny than this particular object. Uh, uh, Magdalena Abakanovic, the uh, Polish sculptor, on the near side, a piece by uh, Chris Burden. Uh, on the far side, uh, Marcus Olin, a German artist. On the near side, a sort of parallel sculpture by uh, Jeff Koons. Uh, on the far side is the Kabakov I mentioned. On the near side is Sophie Kahl. Uh, texts written by members of the MoMA staff to describe a painting which is absent on the wall. And the texts and the little drawings fill the space of the paintings. And what's interesting is that none of the texts are anything like the kind of label that you might or I might write for a museum and none of the pictures look like the absent picture. The truth of the matter is, no matter how hard we try to interpret works of art, the public will, in fact, always reinterpret them differently, even the professional public. Uh, again, Luke Timmons on this side, on the far side, Chuck Close. On the near side, one of the most difficult acquisitions I ever made by Francis Picabia, a truly vulgar painting in, with Warholian uh, coldness uh, towards kitsch and sentimentality, made in the 19, uh, I think about 1949 or 50. So vastly uh, preceding pop art. And on the far side, a painting by Philip Perlstein, which is in potentially very problematic, since what it contains are representations of African Americans and of a white man. Uh, the African Americans are stereotyped, or one might think they are stereotyped. The truth of the matter is that these are African American minstrel dolls made by African American artists and that the intentional confrontation between the white man and this archetype of the black man and the fact that this archetype is made by a black man or a black woman, not by a racist white man trying to caricature them, every contradiction is built in. Now, Perlstein has a reputation for being a cold-eyed realist. 
Uh, he wrote his uh, dissertation at the Institute of Fine Arts where I uh, uh, taught uh, on Picabia. Uh, and so the Dada sensibility in Picabia is transmitted to the realism of Perlstein just as the Dada of Picabia becomes its own weird realism at roughly the same time. Uh, this is Alan Ruppersberg on one side, um, and on the near side I'm just blanking, it'll come to me. But yeah. this is Rachel uh, Whiteread uh, in New York, Water Tower, uh, Christina Ramberg on the far side. I tried to increase the number of women artists and I tried to keep them out of the closet. Uh, this is uh, Cindy Sherman. And these are all paintings from the Bader-Meinhof series referred to by Jonathan. 15 paintings. And this is the first thing I bought. This is a piece by uh, David Hammonds. Uh, and it was the first thing I bought from MoMA. And when I bought it, no one on the committee knew who it was, had never met this artist, heard about this artist. Uh, and at the same time, all of them were compelled by the piece itself, a case of how acquisitions can come in and be understood without there being a history, without there being a logic, how the best work always, in fact, is its own best advocate. Now, I want to just uh, say one or two things at the very end, and that'll be enough. Um, how does one institutionalize the process of uh, this debate among works of art? How do you do it in a way that the fact of not, uh, that you do not blunt it, that you do not, in fact, make it seem easy to handle? How do you do it in a way that engages people to enter into that debate and feel that they have every permission in the world not to agree? Uh, that you do not use the institution of the museum in order to uh, sort of convene a consensus, but rather to convene a forum. And in that forum, anything goes more or less. Uh, we have been through a long period in this country, basically from the 1950s to the end of the 1970s, where there was a sort of forced consensus in art. The ideas of Greenberg, of the mainstream, of the idea that the best art is always agreed upon by the best uh, viewers of art, that there is continuity that is more important than novelty, that quality is always clearer to people than anything else, and that if there is discomfort, it usually means that the work lacks quality, all of these sort of shibboleths, all of these kinds of notions uh, still linger in our art world, and they do so in a way which is disloyal, in my view, to what modern art really is. There's a famous book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structures of Scientific Revolution, where he talks about how with every revolution in science, the previous idea of what was true in science necessarily is overturned. That, you know, Newtonian physics is disallowed by Heisenberg's physics. And some of the stuff we're learning about the solar system now makes mock even of Heisenberg's physics, or at least extends it beyond anything imaginable to the physicists of the 1940s and 50s. This is normal in science. We accept it, basically. Uh, it's been a long time since Galileo uh, was put on trial for thinking that the solar system was not centered on the universe, I mean, on our world, rather, on the Earth. But in art, there is far less tolerance, oddly enough. And people feel much more threatened when there is what Kuhn calls a paradigm shift. What I'm trying to argue for is that that's what modernism is about. It's about paradigm shifts, and it's about also the chance to, as I said, double back and finish unfinished business in previous models without necessarily being a wholehearted reactionary. The way for doing this, basically, is to be wide open. 
The way for doing this is to uh, esteem taste less than appetite. Uh, people who have perfect taste but no appetite are untrustworthy, right? Uh, you need to have people who are willing to eat anything to find out what is good rather than to eat only those things they have been told already by somebody else who may not have much appetite either, taste good. Um, you've got to understand that if you're to have a forum about taste, you have to introduce all the plausible possibilities and let people judge for themselves. If you will, the responsibility of the curator, the responsibility of the critic, the responsibility of institutions in the aggregate is simply not to clutter the atmosphere with things that really are patently bad. And then every once in a while remember that the most radical thing looks really bad the first time you see it. <laughs> so if you cut out the middle average bad and the middle average good and go for deeply upsetting and profoundly moving, uh, for stunningly original or utterly surprisingly traditional and yet vital and alive, you're in better territory than if you look for the middle ground where everybody can sort of agree and sort of tolerate. There's something else, and it was recently said by a, a formerly very, very innovative curator, which bothers me a lot. It has a lot to do with how museums are now dealing with uh, contemporary art. Uh, this person, who, again, I, I know and like, uh, inexplicably said that it was not always necessary to have vision. What was necessary was to have information. Now, this is crazy. Um, and museums should not just be information providers in the sense that you can download anything from them. Uh, a museum is much more in that sense, either on the one hand like a public library, or on the other hand like a well-edited magazine. That a curator or director operates the role of being the editor. And in fact, Rona Rube, who was uh, Alfred Barr's last uh, major assistant before Barr retired, said that she had heard from him that he viewed the Museum of Modern Art is like a big city newspaper. And his job was to survey all the things that came across his desk and to decide what should get printed. And of course, in that, there are calls and judgments and possible errors of judgment. But the idea that you are not simply uh, passing along to people unedited data, you know, but that in fact you are making selections, but you're making selections to save them the trouble of making obvious bad choices or lingering with things that will be unrewarding in order that they can have genuine experience with things that may upset them even more or please them vastly more. And that that is kind of the task at hand. That getting it wrong is a part of getting it right, that Barr famously said also, that in the acquisition of works of art, and the same holds true of sponsoring of exhibitions, if you get three out of 10 right, you're doing very, very well indeed. Uh, and if you, you know, get the old-fashioned normal LP album, there are usually about three or four songs out of 10 or 12 that are good too, so this works in the commercial sphere as well. Um, only, only Sgt. Pepper's is you know, good cover to cover and a few other things since. But um, I'm showing my age, but anyway. <clears throat> but what I'm trying to say is that in all of these things, one has to operate on the one hand dialectically to understand that, that modern art is about this versus that, this versus that, the synthesis of this and that, and the undoing of the synthesis in order to start the process again. It is inherently empirical. It cannot be done by theory. It cannot be done by prediction. You cannot say where art should go. You can only observe where it does go and realize that it's a little bit like releasing cats. It goes in a lot of directions all at once. And lastly, that it is absolutely essential that if modern museums are to stay modern, that they continue to collect the modern of their day. 
and that they, could, that they collect it audaciously rather than timidly, that they accept that there is a margin for error, that they even embrace that margin for error, because that increases the chance of genuine successes far more. That to collect the lesser examples of something you admire does not do a service to the things you admire. To collect those things that you make you see what you admire differently, which may in fact be things that contradict what you admire, that in fact is to your benefit on both counts. So in concluding this, I would just like to say that I think what many, many institutions now are faced with is what we were faced with in 1990, when I first came to the museum, when there was an active debate about whether the collection should be rounded out. We should define modern art as being over in the way that at that time both radicals of the left and radicals of the right said it was over. Uh, and that we should simply then husband our resources and add key elements in places where we had missed things earlier on. It is possible to do that, and one can make treasure house museums that are extraordinary. One can even make a kind of uh, living but largely archival museum of that kind and have it be extraordinary as well. But nothing will do more good for contemporary, excuse me, for old art than contemporary art that understands the merits of the old art either by denial, withdrawal, loss, sacrifice, or by direct but serious engagement with it on another level. And I think basically, in this country particularly, this has been a lesson hard to learn. That if you see what's going on in Europe, even though the financial resources available for museums to do this are far less than they are in this country, the willingness to do it is far greater. The people who love good old modern are much more likely to be actively engaged with the contemporary. And I think the problem for this country is to narrow the distance between the two and putting resources in collecting the classic old to put absolutely equal, not just resources of money, but of attention and tolerance in the direction of collecting and showing the very new and the sometimes deeply upsetting. So that's it. Thank you.